Good morning, Paul. Welcome back after so long away. Come into the office, sit down, have a seat. How are you? Oh, thank you, Dr. Herbert. Paul, 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 before we start, I must insist you could get my name right, so I'm going to break it down by syllable. You'll repeat after me. My, my name is Dr. Herf. Herf. Finn. Finn. Stiff. Stiff. Nerf. Nerf. Now put all that together. Herf, herf, stiff, nerf. Ah, my God. So how do you want me to get back into DC events? I mean, what do you think I should do? Well, it's going to provide some fun and some escapism. I've done a little bit of research and I see that uh, there's been recently an event called it Fear State with its story about the rise of a fascist regime. He used excessive violence on citizens and a misinformation campaign through social media. <laughs> what? That doesn't sound like escapism at all. Oh, look, look, look. Just give it a try. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> okay, you're the doc, doc. OCD, the DC Events Podcast, where we're looking at every single DC event from Crisis on Infinite Earths all the way up to where we are now. And we've had a big break because we caught up to the modern day events and I've rested and had enough time to let new events build up. So I'm returning today to talk about Fear State and I'm not doing it alone. I have two gentlemen who are responsible for the Image Comic Compass. They're Australian, they're talented, they're clever, they're smart, and they're here with me today. So I've got Dave Walker and Robert McKenzie here. So um, let's start with you, Dave. What, uh, how do you like your Batman? I like all the Batman, ideally mixed together in the one blender and then put on a high. <laughs> so you'd want a, a Batman-verse, like a Spider-verse. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Robert, what about you? Look, I too embrace the Batman of many nations and times, but I suppose my strongest influences would be sort of 70s first-gen Denny O'Neill Batman, uh, what Grant Morrison describes as the hairy-chested love god Batman, okay. uh, and then late 90s through mid-2000s revisionist take on that, I suppose. Well, who characterises that for you? Is that Morrison era, or...? So, I, I love the Morrison era, but that also includes the Rucker era, Gotham Central sort of period I really enjoyed. I think there's some nuance there. Everything really from when... Oh, um, Nightfall Post to probably New 52. Right. I can draw an ecumenical version of Batman from, <laughs> I guess would be the way that I would put it. Yeah, no, that is a good patch. But we're not looking at that today. Today we're looking at Fear State, which uh, was an event that came out in 2021, and it ran from August, November. This like 25 branded issues, but the, uh, the DC Universe Infinite app ultra if you are that level of subscriber that recommends about 36 issues so, yeah there's quite a lot there and encompassed like harley quinn catwoman nightwing two issues of batman urban legends there was detective and there was batman and yeah so quite a few things and there was a couple of specials called fear state alpha which started and fear state omega 
which finished it. So it was uh, written mostly by James Tinian the Fourth. He was the leader of the thing. Uh, but Mariko Tamaki did some issues. Tom Taylor did some issues. Ram V, uh, Stephanie Phillips. Uh, but And most of the art chores were done by um, George Jimenez, Dan Mora, Robbie Rodriguez, and Riley Rosmo, and many others. So the gist of it is... After back-to-back crises of Bane seizing Gotham and then the Joker War, the people of the city are on the edge. Arkham Asylum has been devastated by a gas attack which left security guard Sean Mahoney horribly maimed but hailed as a hero. Billionaire futurist Simon Saint makes a deal with Mayor Nakano to ensure his magistrate security services and peacekeeper cyborgs will restore order. But fear grips the citizens of Gotham as there are multiple sightings of the Scarecrow and a crime spree by the techno-anarchist The Unsanity Collective. Matters worsen as Cassandra Kane is framed for murder and a false oracle called Seer usurps Barbara Gordon's computer network. Vigilantes are soon outlawed and Sean Mahoney returns as the cyborg enforcer Peacekeeper 01. Simon Saint has allied himself with the Scarecrow as part of his to elevate and evolve society through a collective trauma. But Scarecrow is playing his own game, controlling Sean Mahoney's actions from a distance with Mad Hatter technology. Batman has been under mental assault from the Scarecrow and struggles to free his mind even after he frees his body. His mission to free his city involves Nightwing, three Batgirls, Catwoman, reformed villain Harley Quinn, and even an uneasy alliance with Miracle Molly of the Unsanity Collective. But how does Poison Ivy and Queen Ivy fit into the salvation or destruction of Gotham? And who is the gardener and what is her purpose? (laughs) Well, gentlemen, so what did you think were the big deals of this? The things that you liked, the things you enjoyed? Okay, so suggest some qualified enthusiasm here. Much of it looks great, I will say. You know, Dan Moore is a rising talent in the DC ranks, and this is, what, 2021? So this is three years before now, and we're getting him in... Before he started doing everything. Correct. A a fledgling performance, but you can see the seeds of what he's becoming there. Uh, I'm a big Scarecrow fan. I enjoy seeing him. Uh, I think he's a a, a good quality villain uh, who's often got a lot of legs in stories that he is in. Uh, and does not have the problem that many of the Batman Rose Gallery do that constantly pushing him to extremes kind of deadens his value. So it's nice to see him get a, a trot out. And it's been a few years or had been a few years in 2021 since he'd had a big to do. You, you did not mention in your list of issues that made up the crossover, as it were, that some of the specials also included individual origin stories for effectively the main players in the book, yes. who are new. Uh, I very much enjoyed the Miracle Molly uh, origin story issue. It's actually probably my favourite issue of the entire piece by ah. some margin. So I will, I will call that out specifically as a thing that I enjoyed. I always enjoy, in the main, seeing the Bat family get together. So it, it's, it's nice to see the band working as one. But these are all qualified ways of saying I think there are some structural things that we will need to dig into that, that don't make this my favorite event of all time, if I can say that. <laughs> and uh, Dave, what would you say? So I totally missed this when it actually happened. It fell into like a black period where I was entirely disconnected from DC and comics generally, which of course makes it the exact one you asked me to come along and speak about. But that given, so I came in blind, no idea what came before, no idea what came after. And you know what? Without the qualifications, broadly, I enjoyed it. You know, the Secret Files were good. I liked the Miracle Molly one. I also liked the Gardner one. 
and I thought the Peacekeeper one had some legs. I thought sort of the standalone Catwoman heist story, though part of clearly a broader Catwoman piece, carried a lot of weight and had a lot of cool heist stuff going on. I also liked the art quite a lot. And I guess there was also something, both a pro and a con, about how meta the crisis was. You know, it was a crisis that fell into the same structure of, like, every other Gotham-based crisis from No Man Land, War Games, the Joker stuff. You know, that they all start to look the same in the city under siege, you know, because it's an easy way to alleviate how you involve everyone in the Bat family but no one with superpowers at the same time. And while I'd say generally that feels pretty tired by this point, that was sort of the entire point of Scarecrow's plan, which I thought was at least a nice lampshade on doing the same thing again. It is kind of funny that the citizens of Gotham are really tired of all the crises and events and they sort of all happen back to back. And it's like, do they represent the readership at this point? <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that you refer to it, Dave, as a meta crisis because it's also mid-pandemic and particularly i imagine when structured and broken down prime pandemic right and so there is a very solid meta element of one of the things that i noticed about the city under siege which is both a pro and a con uh, in the same way is that it involved a lot of people locking themselves inside to avoid what was going on outside you know there's not a lot of big city destroying set pieces so much as there is that vague sense of unease turning to isolation and panic. And I suspect that probably hit harder then than it did looking at it again now because it would have been more current to the readership, but is also a nice way to kind of hang a lampshade on the mood of the moment by doing something quite different, but that, that sounds in similar ways. Yeah, 100%. This is definitely one of those stories where if you were doing this podcast in 20, 30, 40 years someone on the call is going to sound very clever pointing out the period of time, the effect of COVID, you know, that sort of thing, because it's never there explicitly in the story, but it defines sort of every element of the piece. Yeah. And I think James Tinian, his run is quite often defined by the, the things he brought to it. Like he creates a lot of new characters and a lot of new situations. And yeah, I think some of that was to do with the fact that he couldn't get all the characters he wanted to play with. Um, so if he created his own characters, he can do whatever he wants. But I particularly found the Poison Ivy stuff kind of uh, befuddling, and I didn't know exactly where it came from. Like, I think I've read the stories where she almost died, but that bit seemed to fit in the most awkwardly in the whole thing. Uh, what did you think, Robert? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that there is an attempt Amongst other things that this story is supposed to be, I think, or attempting to be, and there's a big bag there of things that it's trying to touch on and reference, and to that extent, I suppose its ambition should be lauded. But one of the things that this is, is it's an ACAB story, right? <laughs> the, the police as an institution, I mean, you mentioned fascists at the top of the summary, the, the police as an institution are not to be trusted particularly given the way in which big private enterprise is capable of inveigling its way into the public trust notionally here is one of the big themes, which is why we're spending time with both Poison Ivy and the Unsanity Collective. And I can sort of understand the attempt to capture both sides of Ivy. You know, Dave and I wrote about this a long 
time ago. But it's very interesting to watch her arc as effectively a one-note villain and femme fatale to eco-terrorist to eco-visionary to eco-anti-hero in, relatively speaking, the evolution of how we feel about what's happening on the planet over the last 40 to 50 years, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's a tension that's never entirely been satisfactorily resolved, in part because the readership ages in and ages out, right? So there are people for whom she has only ever been best bad girl girlfriends with fellow antinomian hero Harley Quinn as they operate outside the hero industrial complex to do what they think is good and evolve society through fun heists and sexy times and whatever else it is that they're doing in individual points, right? But if you're going to in, invest in the totality of the character, there is this thing that you need to reconcile between actually she's a good guy and she's mellowed and no, she really does think most of humanity is supposed to die and different writers take different approaches so you can't even see an overarching continuity of that, right? I mean, it trends in a direction, but like anything else, there's outliers on the, the graph. I, I, I can see trying to do this split in the context of talking about anarchy and social upheaval as a way of having a cake and eating it too, because you have a more, I guess, innocent but less capable Ivy, and then you have a much more dominant but also cold and dangerous ivy and then you kind of do a little power of love story at the end of it but at least it's got a kidnapping heist it's not just a big doctor who style speech which reaches the core of her or anything so uh, i give it a little legs for that but i think that speaks to an overall even confusion might not be the right word and i don't necessarily blame the creatives for this this could well be an editorial decision that they shy away a little bit from getting to the meat of what they suggest. So a lot of stuff is kind of referenced and given a little soups on of flavor, but it's not really engaging with the issues as much as I think it could with state-sanctioned violence and what the police state looks like and what technological panopticon style, everybody can see social media and social credit scores, things, and how that works with old policing institutions. It's all there. It's in the mix. But... It's less a finely balanced gumbo and more scrapings from what's in the bottom of the fridge. Yeah, it feels like a swirl of questions and not many answers, particularly. Even not like I'm not expecting a polemic where they go, by the way, this is the solution to the problem because it's a big issue, right? Yeah. But it doesn't. It shies away from taking a position. It gives Batman a little speech at the end, but I mean that's very platitudinal. Mm. I, I think there's no position taken by the de facto hero of the story that answers these questions or even proposes a framework by which these questions can be reconciled. What are we supposed to do about any of this? They sort of shy away from the main consequences of, I think. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm positive. I'm going to shut up and let Dave talk for a minute, but I'm positive about the idea of the Unsanity Collective kind of being permitted to persist and do their thing to a greater or lesser degree, right? But uh, I think that they, they did shy away a little bit from stuff that they could have grappled more aggressively. Yeah. Dave, do you want to try and unpack for everyone what the Unsanity Collective was and what they were about and how they were uh, represented? I mean, they like flying around on giant drones that they stand on, which seems pretty uh, non-sane. But yeah, what what else were they about? I mean, they're radical, man. They're entirely radical. And I mean this non-ironically. Like, 
they're actually cool, which is a hard thing to do in comics. Like, very late 90s, early 2000s cool, but sometimes you want a bit of that. And they're an attempt to bring into the law and order rhetoric of the Batverse something that allows you to have a bunch of cool punks who are taking on the system and representing all the stuff that young people are putting on the internet or holding up in placards when they march in the streets. And I think the important thing is not just that they exist and have, as was mentioned before, good secret files and Miracle Molly one and uh, a bunch of neat beats, but also they're given the agency at the end to decide how the issue wraps up. And then it's followed up with a little speech by Batman about to Scarecrow about how he's going to let them go and be about their business, even though they're technically criminals that do dangerous things that he should be stopping because old people should not get in the way of young people trying to change stuff. Yeah. So um, they are literally people who have wiped their minds so they can start fresh and they've embraced, you know, technology and different ways of, you know, altering their bodies. So they're sort of a bit transhuman in that, in that way. But yeah, they're, uh, and there's a bit where uh, Molly sort of tangles with the idea of, can she use uh, Scarecrow's technology to wipe everyone's memories of who they are and everyone can start fresh. And that would have, you know, tipped them over the edge into villainy. But um, she backs off from that when she sees how, I guess, positive Batman is about, you know, humanity in Gotham and what they represent. Yeah, so it's some interesting touches there. Not the actual uh, exposition bit where I said what they were and what they're doing. Um, but I think having some of that basic super science technology, they're, they're flying around, they've got super strength, they've got a bit of a New Gods, Tomorrow People vibe to their look. That's exactly what I was going to say, is the forever people with the influence that I really picked up on in a, in a much less 60s right-on way. But were we to reinvent them for the now... I think that's very much the, the vibe that you get there, which is great. Good vibe. It's one of those concepts that I would not be surprised if we never, ever see them again, just because no one really knows what to do with them. That'd be a shame. I mean, I, I, we'll, we'll probably come to this later because I know there are sections where we talk about the future, but uh, they're the most valuable part of the thing, I think. They're the most explored. I think they're what the creative team was the most interested in talking about, which is why... As Dave said, they're ultimately given the narrative agency about how all of this is going to wrap up, right? They start as the scapegoats, and ultimately they are brought on board by the people who are trying to resolve this, and then they are entitled to express and run down their own viewpoint. And I mean, you're quite right, Paul, that Batman gives a little speech going, oh, look, uh, humans can overcome anything, aren't they great? Once you get all the politicians and media and <laughs> all that modern life bullshit out of the way, isn't it just coming down to people and what's in their hearts and blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I think... strip away every institution humans have ever created. Humans are right. okay. <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about, about, like, resiling. For, but don't destroy those institutions. Yes, you're right. The institutions are all bad. What, what's the internet aphorism um, about liberalism? Uh, that the, the effect of this thing is terrible, but the causes are great? Like, it, it's... <laughs> there's a, an unwillingness there to pick a position. But what I like, at least at the open-ended, is, is it doesn't require... It doesn't require necessarily a belief in the intrinsic goodness of people or the intrinsic evil of their institutions for molly to take the position that you can't force the next phase in human evolution like that right like or, or they can still firmly believe 
that ultimately everybody is going to mind wipe and live in a shamanistic future present with New God's technology. And they don't need to get away from that. They can just approach it from a Fabian sense where it will be gradual rather than we can hit a big button and mind wipe people against their will. And I think a big part of that is that even if you mind wiped people, if they weren't willing to take the jump on what comes next, mind wiping is not going to get you where you need to go. And I do think that they developed that theme between Dormouse and Miracle Molly, that, yeah, you can obliterate your former life and free yourself, but you actually have to have some kind of vision for what you want to be afterwards and what you want to do afterwards for it to be effective. And in that sense, thankfully, uh, it does a, a bit of a job in tying itself into Batman and the Batman mythos. Also a man who has effectively erased and recreated himself following a trauma with a very specific vision of what he wants to be that leaves the ordinary life that was put before him behind. It's a different life because he's very, 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 very rich. But nevertheless, what he does is not what people do unless they make a very big and broad decision. Oh, I just want to point out at this stage, Batman is not as rich as he used to be. So he's not filthy rich. He's just very rich. But even within the confines of that particular narrative hiccup, and I doubt it's going to last, but that particular narrative hiccup, when he made the decision to become Batman, he was incredibly rich. He had not been wiped out to just being a multimillionaire. Yeah, point. The problem with that, so can I sidebar? Because this drives me a bit bananas, right? Sure. The problem with Batman not being very rich is that they gave Dick Grayson, like, billions of dollars and every other person that he supported and palled around with. If the goal is to make it so Batman doesn't have the resources to deal with a particular problem, it's really dumb to then just make, you know, Alfred's estate and all his family and friends have that amount of money. It's, it's a it's a non-starter. Either own it and wipe him down the way they wipe down Green Arrow, or don't pretend like he doesn't have access to whatever he needs, because it's silly. I mean, that could be feeling really personal, just like everyone has money and they won't give it to Bruce. <laughs> yeah, but then, then it, see, that'd be really interesting if you if they would stick to their guns of it. If, if Bruce was asking and everyone's like, eh, no. Um, You've been a jerk for many, many years. Remember that time you kept secret files on us all and did this and did that? Interesting. You know, I think not ultimately something I'd support. Batman should be a a good enough man for his world and a good man in any world, right? But at least there's an angle on that that just isn't sometimes he has money and sometimes he doesn't and the apartment's less fancy than it used to be. And I do wonder, Paul, touching on the point that you made, whether or not that is just an attempt to do the trappings of removing the hero from the billionaire class given what the billionaire class is currently engaged in doing and what that therefore means. But it's a surface-level wipe, right? It doesn't actually get into the privilege and the noblesse oblige and the capacity of rich people to do whatever they want, including but not limited to being Batman, that they would really need to grapple with if they want to unpack that and get away from it. I think they're better off owning it and trying to integrate it into the whole. It's so half-hearted the way they've approached it that they may yeah. as well have not done it. That, not to call that out, but I think that's the theme of what's going on in this crossover to a greater or lesser extent, and I suppose... I'm enjoying a lot of DC books at the moment, so I don't mean to, to waggle my eyebrows negatively, but, you know, there is a sense of perhaps shying away from bigger decisions in favour of kind of half-heartedly hinting at stuff 
but you know, I'll just try it. We can go back to the core. Anybody who's not paying too much attention can pretend that everything is the core version of what it was, but also we've got plausible deniability about anything that contains tension. Like, uh, Pet Hate that appeared in this crossover of mine, which I'm going to touch on here a little bit, is Commissioner Montoya is a terrible idea. I don't know who put that on. But there's a real vibe that... And, uh, again, I'm not pointing to anybody in particular. I don't have inside track information on that. Don't get that impression at all. That perhaps putting their queer Latina police officer at the forefront creates a smokescreen for talking about social justice issues in the police in a way that perhaps tokenistically represents that they're not all Sean Mahoney style fourth generation Irish skull cracking cops. Like it's, it's yeah, it, it really is a, a diminishment of her character in every way. And it's um, a retroactive step considering all the growth that has happened to her since she left the police. Yeah, exactly right. It is kind of a betrayal of all that, all the places. But even that, it goes to the core origin point, right? Which is that this is a character who was an outsider and who was established from the point where post-Batman the Animated Series she got in-depth characterization as having always been holding herself out of remove. And I'm not saying you can't do a good story about how that character then embraces the tension of becoming an institutionalist, the police commissioner, the person who runs the police rather than somebody who stands outside. But they keep shying away from any implications of that. I'm going to stop saying shying away because it's going to sound like a catchphrase, but they, they do. They, they just, the, the crossover is really, you know, why do we see her in this stuff at all? The, the, the commission arm of the GCPD, as opposed to, what is being done with magistrate security forces directly through the mayor don't really contribute anything to this story at all, for good or ill. Even their perspective is sort of shut it out. They're told, oh, get off the streets, there's going to be problems, and then we don't really see them again. Yeah. So what was the point in doing that in the first place? Is it just to sort of say, oh, don't worry, there's some good cops under the MCU umbrella, and they're not here for various reasons to create discomfort in the narrative that we're telling about how we manage police and how whether or not quote unquote there's good apples in the barrel and all the rest of that stuff they sort of shuffle it off to one side and again that is avoiding i didn't say shying away uh more serious issues that could be grappled with i think in a narrative of this nature well she becomes the character who shows up and tells batman he shouldn't be being batman even though the entire audience want batman to be batman so she just becomes this you know negative bummer for the comic she also becomes the same person in the increasingly degenerating bad guy camp which is a very boring job like the babysitter you know everyone gets to call up and complain to her and she says i saw this coming and then they go on with whatever stupid fascist plan or recovery attempt they're trying and she gets to throw her phone on the ground and swear in little bat symbols <laughs> yeah like, and that sure. lets her explain over and over again that everyone can realize the villain is doing something stupid yeah speaking yeah. of it like i'm not the biggest fan of future state but this feels like a real waste of future state yeah i, I the way it was explained to me was future state is what like the batman stories were basically telling this story in the future but it was more a case of what if um, the Scarecrow and the Magistrate had succeeded in their plan to completely break Gotham and recreate as something new, which 
looks just as horrible and sucky. Yeah, I'm not worried about timelines or continuity of any of that stuff. I just mean, if you're going to do high-tech fascist police Gotham as brought to you by Silicon Valley, you know, having it hijacked at about the halfway point by Scarecrow with a classic Scarecrow plan doesn't feel like you actually want to give too much page count to that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to shift focus now and we'll talk about what came out of this. Yeah, throughout this event, you'll see the seeds of things forming. And one of them is um, Arkham Tower, which is the new iteration of um, Arkham Asylum, which is now a tower and corporately run. A little bit of thread there. That's quite a good story. I recommend that. <clears throat> Task Force Z sort of comes out of this because a lot of villains died in um, A-Day, which is the gas attack on Arkham Asylum. So some of them get resurrected as zombies and they get run in a team by, uh, what's his face, Red Hood. So Batgirls, which is very prominent throughout this, leading into its own series, which is like uh, Charlie's Angels with Cassandra and Stephanie and Oracle running them. And uh, the other one was Batman Incorporated, which is uh, Ghostmaker. Well, <laughs> yeah, Ghostmaker's throughout this story. Him running a sort of international group of Batmen uh, and doing different things, uh, which includes uh, Clown Hunter. Clown Hunter, Ghostmaker. I've had to learn those names properly. I'm just letting you know. Yeah, so they're the main things that came out of that. But we'll take a break now. Um, Ashford on his uh, Huntress podcast, he did a, a series about the Arkham Tower storyline. So uh, I recommend that and we'll play their promo now. To confront the ultimate killers, I must construct the ultimate alias. Hey, who is that lady? I think she could fly. To combat the murderers who destroy my family, crush my own life on their way to consuming everything, I must become a greater, more fearsome destroyer. Hey, man, somebody killed this lady. To track down the animals who prey on the innocent, I must stalk them first. I am no longer their quarry. I am the Huntress. You can listen to the Huntress Podcast online at thehuntresspodcast.com, at Apple Podcasts. Go to Twitter at Huntress Podcast. And again, this shares a feed with the Batgirl Cassandra Kane Podcast. Cheers. So let's start looking at eventiness and we'll start scoring it. Just explain the scoring. The way this works is um, Robert and Dave are going to give scores out of 10. I'm also going to give a score out of 10 and I'm going to halve my scores. There's four categories. And when we get all that done, we'll have a score out of 100, which tells us exactly how good this event is. And then we can plug it into the table with all the other events and see where it sits. That's the theory anyway. So, um, yeah. So, Robert, what did you think of the eventiness of this story? And you can talk about how you came to give your score out of 10. I'm going to take a bit of a Harvey Dent position on eventiness, let me explain. On one level, I don't think there was terribly much in here from the villain plan and its execution that should sit outside the confines of an ordinary Batman story. The Scarecrow getting co-opted by corporate forces and then co-opting the corporate forces to do a big, scary thing should be big enough to be in a Batman comic by itself or a series of Batman comics by themselves, but not necessarily any further in terms of an event that changes a paradigm or shifts around the status quo in any particular direction, if you follow me. So... And then that's not a, an assessment of quality to an extent. That's part of its charm, right? But we've touched on they've just come out of 
Bane taking over the city, which was just a mainline contained event, and then Joker War, which was an event but kind of a, a mini event confined in some various areas, if you know what I mean. To and and that's on on top of a three decade long legacy of this keeps happening, and we have to accept both because they hang a lampshade on it in the text, but also because we've read a bunch of Batman comics and we know that it's true, that that is, to a greater or lesser extent, just what living in Gotham is like. And so I don't think the overarching events of for an indeterminate but short-ish period of time armed super police take over the city should really change the confines of a Batman comic. So I was minded on one level to give it a low eventiness score. But on the other hand, Batman is barely in it. Like, uh, he's around and, you know, he's under vague mind control stuff. But the the thrust of the event is primarily interested in new characters who don't have their own title or no novel team-ups. And that is, in many ways, the essence of an event or a big crossover or any of that stuff, right, is that you can launch and spend time with characters who are not otherwise represented in the published line and they can take center stage for a while because of what's happening here that's why you have a what launched out of section in the dcocd podcast is because that's part of what events do and it goes pretty hard on that and they tend to be the best parts of i think what is in it where they're focusing on these new original characters and that's quite inventy so on that level i'm sort of tempted to give it an eight but if it's a two and an eight then kind of meeting in the middle it's a five for eventiness, but if we can record somewhere on the notes that that's not its mid-strength eventiness, it is operating on two poles, I would appreciate that very much for the, the arc of history. <laughs> yeah, I'll put, I'll put an asterisk next to the five and remember that forever. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Dave, what did you think? I don't know how to follow that up, <laughs> but I'll add the one thing I don't think was said was I think it also probably fails in its sort of attempt to be one of those vanity project events. You know, many new characters aside, what this is is an attempt to be, I don't know, a long Halloween or a killing joke for Scarecrow. And I love Scarecrow, and I, I don't feel like it gets there. Like, I don't think this is the sort of thing in 10 years' time when people are reaching around for that definitive Scarecrow trade paperback. This is going to be the go-to that it was intended to be for a variety of reasons. So... I'm comfortable with a five. Let's go with a five. Righto, and then it comes down to me. Yeah, uh, it's hard because, I mean, we do get events that are, you know, DC Universe spanning, and this is just, you know, Gotham spanning. Like, this is the eternal question on the show, is which events do we cover and which ones do you skip? And sometimes there are so many Batman events back-to-back that you kind of go, well, we won't cover this one. And so we're jumping in on this one to look look at it briefly because it's the start of this section. But, yeah, I think, I think it's an okay event on the... The Gotham scale, um, I, I think it works nicely with the other characters coming in, and I like the fact that um, Batman is in a pretty good headspace with all these allies. He's not um, being the bat dick, or you know, I don't need your help, leave me alone, Batman. He just trusts everyone, and th- there's a good vibe amongst the crew at this point, and I particularly enjoy the fun of the the Batgirls. I, I don't think it's super eventy. It's not going to change anyone's world and people won't go oh what's the greatest batman stories ever told uh, you know fear state no that's not going to happen so i'm going to give it a four out of ten now on to the writing so dave you get to go first this time so what did you think of the writing of this one it's interesting because it's competent all the way through and there are some really good 
individual issues. And uh, obviously it's largely got sort of a core writer working through it, so you can hear that voice. Panel to panel and pacing structure, all of that's pretty good. But, you know, we've, I think, hammered on the plot and the thematics long enough that that some ambivalence is showing through there. So it'd be disingenuous to go too high just because it reads pretty. Um, it's interesting because it's Dinian's last thing, right, on, on Batman before he moved on to do whatever non-DC stuff he was doing after that. And it doesn't feel like it was intended to be sort of a, a final statement or a denouement. But, you know, I think it was better written than it was a venti. So I'm going to take that five and knock it up to a six and a half. You can't do halves. Can't do halves. Go to seven. Go to seven. Yeah, you know what? If you go to seven, I'll go to six and we'll get the... That's, that's, when you get two, yes. two guests, you get the two-pup. We can get there. <laughs> no collaboration, please, on scoring, okay? This is a, <laughs> a pure scientific process. <laughs> All right, I will go next on this. I'm giving it a six for the writing. I think it is very nicely written all the way through. I think the high points are those secret uh, files issues. The I really enjoyed the Scorsese uh, Peacekeeper one issue. I enjoyed that. I really liked the Miracle Molly one with the repetitive breaking out of drudgery life, and I, I really enjoyed that one. And uh, the Gardner one, I can't remember now, but I think I liked it at the time. So, And the main story, I mean, it flows quite well. I mean... I'm used to looking at an event saying, how well is this put together? Do the the different pieces... Like, we kind of get these little trilogies of um, character books. So the Nightwing issues all sort of flow together of Nightwing being tricked into coming to Gotham and then fighting with his, uh, his people by his side and then they bring down the magistrate's UFO or whatever we want to call it. So those little chapters worked quite well. So structurally, I thought it was quite well written. But I'm going to give it a six, as I said. Uh, what about you, Robert? Yeah, I mean, I, I promised that I would give it a six in theory to collaborate on scoring, but you've just given it a six, which I think frees me from my obligation because the average is the way Dave wanted them to be. I think we all agreed, right, that, that there's perfectly good fundamentals there. The team who are doing this know what they're doing. I think there are two things that bring it down for me and then a few things that bring it up. The first things that I found a bit troubling were... We've, we've hammered on a lot. I'm, I'm still sceptical of what its overall vision is supposed to be. What is it saying about Gotham and the world and the nature of being afraid that it, it thinks it is interesting to explore? And then stepping aside from all that numinous writerly bullshit, it's a superhero comic. It should have big, fancy set pieces in it that wow the mind and dazzle the imagination. And there's a lot of people running from location to location as the spine of this thing. And I can't think off the top of my head of any big moments where I went, Ooh, wow, that's some thrilling superheroics. There's a lot of grabbing people and running, even the bringing down of the UFO, right? Is people steal costumes and sneak on board and then beat up a rich guy's security team, which is fine, but is not what I necessarily think of as the vision of thrilling superheroics, right? Something that I didn't touch on before and I should is um, I have read the Batman Incorporated books a little bit that spun out of this because I was a big fan of original Batman Incorporated, and I've read a few things going on in Batman and Associated Lines over the last couple of years. I have never really been able to get on a wavelength with um, Ghostmaker, a character who triggers a bunch of things that annoy me from how he's described and put together. Uh, <laughs> but I did find him 
relatively speaking, useful and charming as a foil in this book. It's the first time I've ever looked at him and gone, look, all right, fine. You're never going to be my favorite, but fine. You're filling a function here, right? Um, the other have, thing is that gut. Yep. Have you read um, Batman the Night with a K? I have read Batman the Night. Right. And I understand where he's at from the origin story point. I think using sociopathy for stuff like that can be overused. I think the tension of, oh, he wants to kill people, but Batman won't let him kill people because he's doing things is a hard thing to play straight. And I think the knight and a bunch of the surrounding issues try to play that really straight as a genuine pathology and a real tension. I like that these books play it almost more like Midnighter is traditionally played, right, where there's a, a, a wink and a smirk to it that look, this is all pretend, so the ultraviolence doesn't actually matter, so we can joke about the potential for it in there, and everybody will, will understand that we're kind of skirting around some of this stuff, yeah? Like, I, I appreciated the attempt of what the knight was trying to do, and I, I'm always a fan of people turning up from the backstory, but I just found, I, I've, I've never sat well with the character, but I felt he was he was well done here, so I'm going to give him a couple of points for that. The other thing is that Gardner issue the 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 gardener secret files which was the history of the gardener's relationship with pamela isley slash poison ivy did contain within it something that surprised me that i quite enjoyed which is the seed of a potential story arc set in the past which i would have found really interesting which was the suggestion that the gardener and poison ivy and swamp thing and abby kane were all kind of funky grad students under jason woodrow and that there was a kind of the magicians or um, halt and catch fire research storyline thing going around where they were having kind of quasi weird plant science adventures in their early twenties. I would really like to see that. I would enjoy the stories of here is what is happening in then non-fluoronic man, Dr. Jason Woodrow's lab while these people were reinventing the earth. I thought that was a strong runner that, that I don't think anybody will ever do anything with. But I appreciated seeing it and went, you know what, that's pretty clever. That'd be a fun set of stories to do. I think that ties back to um, Neil Gaiman's Black Orchid story as well, because uh, they were all involved there. They all know each other. They, they were. The specific idea that they were kind of funky Shonda Rhimes grad students hanging out together <laughs> was less developed. But I actually quite like it as a growing out of, you know, we know that the Woodrow's around the more will-they-won't-they romances. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Like, it could be a fun little, slightly villainous soap. Somewhere between Grey's Anatomy and Smallville and all those kind of primetime soap opera things, but with plant eco-terrorism. Yeah, can and I, I think my plant girlfriend ahead of my plant career? Yeah, but also my plant girlfriend is killing people. Like, you know, in, in the way... <laughs> Uh, that's a really interesting little this sounds like a pun and i don't intend it to be but an interesting seed for future stories that i would like to see developed which is a a roundabout way of saying i'll give it i'll give it a five Uh, although i found those seeds interesting and i thought some of the characterization bits were good I, i just struggle with the overarching moment to moment it's fine but not thrilling, and then the whole adds up to less than the sum of its parts. Well, it sounds like a pitch you, you two could develop for DC right there. Yeah, guys, I, for all the cracks that we've made about editorial conservatism, we will come on board to do this story if anybody is hearing us. <laughs> all right. So now we're moving on to the art and covers, which uh, I, I find the art in this quite delightful, but 
I would say the art shines when it's um, characters up close punching each other and are a little less clear when you've got giant things in the sky falling out of the sky. So, yeah, there's a real dynamism to the art. Jimenez's art is just fantastic, and I love... He does an epic Batman flexing, sweating, and all that sort of stuff. And Robbie Rodriguez, his art on the the Tom Taylor Nightwing issues was lovely, and he's an artist who's most famous for Spider-Gwen, and it's great to see that dynamism in there and Riley Rosmo sometimes I love his art sometimes I don't this was sort of I didn't love it in this one I think that's more the character designs and things in Harley Quinn but yeah the the art throughout was really solid I don't think it's the best art I've ever seen in my life but certainly it had a sort of a futuristic style and I particularly enjoyed it with the um Unsanity Collective the way they all look the designs there some really sharp stuff so, uh, for me, the art and the covers um, are strength of this. Oh, and particularly the art in the Secret Files issues, which was very uh, not your standard DC stuff. I liked that w- the way that was used, uh, particularly with the Scorsese-ish story for Sean Mahoney and his scumbag cop family. So, um, yeah, I'm giving it an 8. All right. Uh, Dave, what do you think? I agree with everything you just said. And, I, I mean, on the art, I think Christian Ward for the Secret Files Gardener, did a really good job. Um, I won't make any more plant puns, because I think we've we've tapped <laughs> that. But Jimenez always just gives good Batman, and, and everyone playing in that sandbox did well. But for something different, the Secret Files Gardener was a very artistic piece, um, and I thought well-conceived and well-delivered to drop into the middle of an event. So, yeah, an eight. An eight. Uh, and Robert, bring it home on the art. Yeah, but it's just furious consensus here is the issue. Like, I liked that they did, I guess, what I would call good, clean, classic superhero art for the main narrative and then made good use of the secret files to do stuff that was a bit more experimental. And as you say, not standard DC fare. There's stuff in there that's uh, reminiscent of uh, Criminal, and then there's stuff in there that's reminiscent of kind of mid to late 80s vertigo stuff where it's all kind of harsh lines and vaguely Dave McKinney in parts and lots to recommend it there. Uh, I'm, I'm quite comfortable giving it that eight as well. It's a very good looking event. If I could do half points, which I know I can't, <laughs> I am. The one thing that I will say is I was not wowed disappointingly for what is supposed to be a scarecrow show place by any of the hallucinations particularly like you know there's there's people who are supposed to be under the influence of extreme fear states and hallucinogens and mad hatter hats and all these other things and the sense of oh wow that would be really terrifying wasn't there terribly much i thought everything was well depicted and easy to follow and clean and clear but i would have liked a few more wow moments to be set up for the very clear talent that they had on these books to shine a little more in the horrific space. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it the eight. I'm not I'm not taking the eight away for that. It's just a note. Before we move past the art, one thing I wanted to call out is the, the Vancouver Catwoman stuff I thought continued to be really good. Obviously, it's off a piece of the Catwoman that came before and after more than anything particular for this event. But I just thought that art really suited that book. Hmm. What do you do? Oh, this is just an aside. What did you think of the Scarecrow design? 
again, not defined enough for this to be the Scarecrow look in the Scarecrow story. Yeah, I I prefer my classic Scarecrow, I think, but maybe that's just, you know, all the indoctrination of Norm Brayfogle and things like that. You know, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I want him to have a burlap sack over his head most of the time, and then the burlap sack to become something truly terrifying. Yeah. I agree with that, is that... that if you're going to do a new look as part of the big event and you want this to be, oh, by the way, the Scarecrow's secretly been a really big threat all along and you've been downplaying him as a man in a silly Scarecrow outfit, you really want to go hard on something that you really believe is better than the Bray Fogel era classic design. And that's that design's so strong. Uh, you know... Some people seem to think it's a little bit silly, but there's something great about the uncanny valley of that weird face. There's a reason that people go back to scarecrows in all kinds of horror narratives as a creepy thing. It does really sell this kind of unsettling limit to it. Making it this thing of distortion and shadows and whatnot is a bit less impressive to me. Yeah. Yeah, not to backseat drive, but like it's a scarecrow. You've got Wicker Man stuff for days. Yeah. Yeah. I. I appreciate a lot of spindliness in my scarecrow and a bit of an alien nature in his limbs and things like that. Yeah. I mean, he's got to be a guy that's so weird that in the world of ectomorphic New England academics, even the other professors are ripping on this guy so pathologically that it develops a complex by which he becomes the scarecrow and starts, you know, ripping off banks and such. Like, that's his origin story is people made fun of his weird look and his book-buying habits. That guy should feel weird. Uh, Killian Murphy did an okay job of it, because he's good at being unsettling and a bit strange in a in an oddly handsome way. Like, I don't think anyone's chucking rocks at that guy behind the Miskatonic University garden sheds. But that that weirdness, that spindliness, that creepiness should inform the mask and everything under it in a way that elevates just having us just inverted commas having a scarecrow yeah around and i think there's a, a thing where you accept batman being on weird perch parts of the city all the time but it's kind of strange when another character starts doing it and throughout this story the scarecrow is always on top of a building spire or something and you just why how what yeah <laughs> anyway all right, let's go on to the impact and legacy, which I, I think will be an interesting discussion. So, Robert, what did you think about impact and legacy? I mean, I was talking the other day. This is a, a complete aside to a greater or lesser extent, but I think it's illustrative of what I mean, which is I was talking to people about the Dungeons and Dragons movie that came out last year, and I said that I'd give it an eight because it was so unapologetically willing to be a seven. And what I mean by that is sometimes... Staying within the scope of your ambitions makes you stronger, not weaker. Saying, I want to do this thing and I want to do it well and execute it without shame is an asset in a world where I think increasingly we see people trying to reinvent the wheel every time instead of delivering us some pretty decent Batman fundamentals. And one of the things that I liked about this event is that I don't think there's much in it that needs to strip out the scope of Batman fundamentals or the the confines of his world. Severe comics to a greater or lesser degree 
he says, waxing lyrical. You used to cram in this level of supporting characters all the time. I mean, you think back to early 90s books, right, where there's Harold who does the wheels on the Batmobile hanging around and Azrael and the Collective, and they're back for this, right? But they come from that point where there weren't events for those things. They were just constantly crammed in, or Superman going to Transylvain and hanging out with the Metropolis special unit and then all kinds of weird things coming from the Guardian and Project Cadmus and just constantly reining that in there. Superhero comics should be weird and unapologetically filled with weird, big things happening that kind of get moved on from. This is well within the scope of all of that, I think. Yeah, and marketing needs to step back a little bit and just let the stories be stories. Yeah, I would have enjoyed this a lot more if it had been either eight issues of Batman and Detective doing two-by-twos as Fear State. And just, look, that one's there. Catwoman's there. It's not crossing over into their own title. They all live within six miles of each other, and they're all in each other's business all the time. Of course they turn up. You don't need to kind of apologize for that or tie in more books than you need to. Or alternatively, really done it for like a year, right? This is the Fear State and showed everything getting weird and frightening and showing what it means for this vision of human development that that I think they didn't give themselves time or space to do. Mm. And so there are a lot of ways it could have had a more lasting legacy than I think it did or it will. And I think it could have been, it could have had a really good legacy as a back-to-basics Batman comic, particularly in the wake of Joker, Warren, Bane, and all these sort of things, right? Here's, here's a good example of Batman doing the type of stuff that's in his day job with the people that he does it with. Oh, no, the Scarecrow's here and he's got a plan. And that would have had a real legacy to it as a palate cleanser. The way that Dark Horse books that don't do terribly ambitious things but do the fundamentals really well stand out after five to ten years as great stories that people keep coming back to to show what it's all about. Or they could have done something really ambitious and done this is the fear state. And they didn't really do either. So I think that's going to hurt them for ultimate legacy in the grand scheme of things. It becomes very forgettable because it feels like it's being pushed to be more than it is. So what's your score? Six. Six? Six. Okay. I, I really have to dislike it to give it below a five, but six. Yep. All right, Dave, what do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I totally missed this one. And until I was invited to read it for this, nothing ever forced me to go back and look. Like, it, it, I know that's only like two, three years ago. But in that time, it hasn't really come up again. And having read it, I feel like there are less things on the shelf than when it started in a bunch of ways, right? Like, it, it's great that the Unsanity Collector's out there, not that anyone's used it. But Simon Saint's not going to be running a legitimate corporation anytime soon. You know, a bunch of other pieces sort of tidied up and closed out. And the things that did roll out of it, like Ghostmaker, seem to have sort of... Any connection to Fear State itself seems to be sort of forgotten so you know this is not a criticism of a comic one way or the other but i'm i'm not sure what the legacy was so yeah five five yeah uh for me i think i'm giving it a four for legacy i I don't think there is a lot there that has been used and i think a lot of publishing initiatives would come along anyway without this story which is often what happens but if we get to see uh, miracle molly in the future and perhaps the Unsanity Collective and they're used in in an interesting way by someone with a bit of a vision, that could be fantastic. So the potential is there and I'm going to give it four for that potential. So 
Oh, and I, I just I forgot to mention in the art that I really enjoyed Simon Saint losing it at the end with lo- with lots of sweat and things like. He looked like a Tintin character when he was freaking out. <laughs> True. I mean, yeah. Simon Saint's really interesting as a construct. He's not very interesting as a person. Uh, they could have gone really hard. Why is he a scientist? Why is he good at science? He doesn't need to be. Most tech bros aren't. If the whole point is to satirize, look, these idiots don't know what they're doing, which is why you've got Montoya swearing little bat symbols that this is all going to go tits up, right? Is the, the time to do that is to say, actually, Simon Saints, like certain other Twitter-owning billionaires, kind of a pointless, narrow-minded fool. And they, they sort of, they, they hint towards it, and he's clearly not very capable in the last sequence, but I think even trying to establish him as a viable shadow threat is probably a mistake. Billionaires like that can be incredibly dangerous without having personal talents themselves. Money unleashed is dangerous enough. Mm. Yeah, but I think that's because they're trying to unwind Future State, right? He comes in much more credible than what he is unwound. To. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You've got that reverse engineering where he starts out sort of as potentially someone who will be the grand conqueror of all Gotham, and he ends up as, like, the Venture Brothers Augustus St. Cloud. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, the, the, what I thought of, because I think they're clearly the two biggest influences, right, watching that unfold, was watching Steve Jobs turn into Elon Musk over the course of, like, 12 issues. And I, I think that's by design, but I think that, that ultimately that gives more credit to Steve Jobs than potentially he deserves. So... <laughs> You know, that's the challenge of it. Wow, we're really getting into a real-world commentary here. Yep, zing. These are the hard-hitting comments that Fear State wanted us to engage in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I have added up our scores, and that has given us a score of, uh, well, Dave, you gave it 25, if we add all yours together. Robert, you gave it 24, so way harsher than Dave. And I gave it 22, and we halved mine, which makes it 11. Add those together, and we get a score of 60. So if you allow me a second to bring up my website, I will look at where this sits on the DCOCD ladder. And a 60 feels about right while you do that. The maths works. Clearly the DCOCD machine is just perfectly calibrated to spit out (laughs) what I would call an accurate assessment. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, let's consider this question. Would you recommend that people would enjoy this story? This belongs to a completionist, not yeah. to someone I hand you to go, this will get you into bat comics. Exactly correct. It is It is an archetypal 60, which is it's not at that 70 level where I'd be like, no, this is a good read, you'd enjoy this. But it's not like 40 level where I'd be like, you should skip it. It's sitting there 100% as the type of thing where if you were going to work your way through, there's enough interesting bits in there to probably make it worth chewing down your Brussels sprouts as part of it. <laughs> Well, um, it is actually tied with two other events, um, and we're calling the New 52 an event in this instance. Um, so that was all the good and the bad of the New 52 all at once, which was a, uh, we characterised that as a publishing event rather than an event yep. event. And also uh, Justice League versus Suicide Squad, which is an incredibly memorable event from all accounts. So, yeah, that's where it sits. Good company. Strong <laughs> contenders all for that city spot. It's really interesting in the sense that thinking about the New 52 in that context, right, that again is there's interesting seeds 
amongst big diets of fertilizer to get somewhere in no offense new 52 but it, 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 there's big polarities there rather than sitting around a mediocre middle yeah and i think that's that's true of this event too right is that there, there are some strengths there's some real strengths but there's weaknesses that kind of average it out to that that 60 yeah anyway gentlemen uh it's the end of the show is there anything you'd like to recommend um i have read your comic in the past as you know i talked to you about your comic before it came out uh but compass is a very good image comic how would you describe it it's an archaeologist comic in the vein of euro adventure comics like 1010 to a greater or lesser extent but also uh indiana jones is one of its strongest influences if you like lara croft and that sort of thing but the twist on that that we think makes it relatively special is that it takes place in the 13th century uh, against the background of Mongol conquests, and it is fundamentally about representatives of the House of Wisdom, so uh, the Islamic Caliphate as it then existed, but also Mongols and uh, scholars from ancient China moving westward into Europe. I had to figure out the direction there. Uh, Moving westward into backwards kind of barbarous Europe to uncover its mysterious and somewhat occult ruins and histories and legacies, particularly uh, in relation to uh, The Cauldron of Rebirth, which is the title of the first volume. Yeah, it's a rollicking adventure. It's it's kind of in the vein of Indiana Jones without the weird colonialism. Distinctly, we, we took it up as a anti-colonial project, which makes it that much more academic than it, it is. It's not. There's, you know, Kung Fu Druids and various other twists and turns as you make your way through it. But the whole point was about flipping the lens of where do scholars and research and the modern age come from and where is the mysterious wild and how do you explore that? And that was an opportunity to do that, that that we are proud of and enjoyed very much. Yeah, and you've done a couple of things at the periphery of um, some of Greg Rucker's stuff, like uh, the Lazarus Source Files, and uh, you did a short story for one of uh, Tales of the Old Guard, I believe. We did, Tales Through Time. We're, we're floating around. Um, we've got a co-authored RPG in addition to the World of Lazarus RPG that we did that uh, should be coming out uh, from uh, Adamant Entertainment later on this year, which uh, Dave and I did alongside my wife and a bevy of other kind of creators. So if you're in the tabletop RPG space, look for that. And there's a few more things in the pipeline where you might see us around sooner rather than later, depending on how events take place. Fantastic. And uh, anything you want to add there, Dave? No, it's been lovely to talk to you. No worries. I just want to thank the uh, members of our brew crew, the people who have supported us by buying us a coffee. So we've had uh, Arbad, Bill Bear, Kevin Wedder, uh, Keith G. Baker, Ashford Wright, uh, Tim Price, Frack, Mike Atchison, and Mark Bender. They've all been generous and given us, and they're going to have a, uh, a, what are we calling it, a hang, a brew crew hang in uh, later this month and it's going to be lots of fun so if you want to be part of that just give us buy us a coffee buy us one coffee buy us 40 coffees whatever you feel like and you'll be part of the hang and uh, you'll be in that ex- exclusive club so but yeah thanks everyone thanks for coming on board for dcocd really enjoyed having you here and your thoughts gentlemen uh now what is next on the show i think i'm doing trial of the amazons which is uh, uh one of those infrequent Wonder Woman-based events. Oh, intriguing. Intriguing that we didn't get to go to that one. We'll be listening with great interest. (laughs) Fantastic. All right, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time on DCOCD. (laughs) 